happens. But you also have your present intention and the results of your present intention. So you've got these three elements that you can focus on. So the question is, what do you do with this knowledge? What's the best use of this? And the Buddha says that there are basically two levels of use. One is if you want to stay in the normal situation of causality, but live more happily, live more skillfully. In other words, find a relative level of happiness through relatively more skillful intentions. Or you can work toward an ultimate happiness that goes outside of causality by learning to make your intentions more skillful and to the point where you actually get to the point where you could end intention. This choice is reflected in the two levels of right view that the Buddha taught. Look on passage number three. You've got mundane right view and transcendent right view. Mundane right view is one of those passages that people don't read very much. It's, you very rarely hear it discussed. This is basically the Buddha's explanation of karma. Sort of fleshes out the teaching on karma. And it's interesting to notice what he starts with. There is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. Now this was stated in opposition to the, another belief that was prevalent at the time, that there was no virtue in giving. There was no virtue in being generous. Because everything was totally predetermined, you didn't have anything to do with it, this thing passed from your hand to the other person's hand simply through you know, the, the, the laws of science. It was determined that it was going to happen since you had no role in it, then there was no virtue in the giving. But the Buddha says, no, there is virtue in giving. It's essentially what that first sentence means. There are the fruits and results of good and bad actions. Basic karmic principle that you act on skillful intentions, you get good results. You act on unskillful intentions and you get bad results. Now there's a complexity to that that we'll go into later. But just sort of notice that. There is this world and the next world. In other words, there is this life and there's a life after this. There is father and mother. That again was stated in opposition to the idea that since your parents had to give birth to you, there was no virtue in their being your parents and so you don't, offer, you don't owe them any debt of gratitude. And here the Buddha is saying, yeah, there is a debt of gratitude. Your parents chose to have you, they chose to raise you. So you do owe them a debt of gratitude. There are spontaneously reborn beings, i.e. the beings that are born in the various levels of hell, various levels of heaven. And if you want to go there, we can go there. <laughs> And there are priests and contemplatives, or Brahmins and Samanas, to use the Pali term, who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next, having known it directly for themselves. In other words, this is not just hearsay. There are people who've experienced this directly in their meditation, that they know that there really are other worlds of being, and that people really are born there, reborn there, on the basis of their karma. 
couple of things I'd like to point out in this passage. It's, it's interesting that the virtues surrounding karma are the virtues surrounding generosity. Being generous is a good thing. And also the virtue of gratitude towards your parents, or gratitude to those who have helped you. So when the Buddha introduces the teaching on karma in this context, the sort of the social virtues, virtues that come out of karma are generosity and gratitude. I one time gave a whole Dharma talk on the, on the, on the topic that you know, generosity really does come first in the practice. If you develop an attitude of generosity, realizing if you're going to get anything good in this life, you have to be giving to begin with. You bring this attitude to your meditation, it's a very different kind of attitude. I, I told the story in that talk of how one of John Suwat, one of my teachers, was giving a retreat at IMS. It was his first time teaching a large group of Westerners. And after the second or third day, he turned to me and said, doesn't look, everybody looks so grim? And you look out and everybody's mm, like this. <laughs> and his analysis of why that was is because everybody was coming to the meditation straight to the meditation. This was their first introduction to the Buddha's teachings. Whereas over in Asia, your introduction first is through generosity and then through virtue. You, you learn some very counterintuitive lessons. That by giving things away, you're going to be happy. Or by learning how not to do things that you want to do, but you refrain, refrain from them, actually you, you become happier. And so you come to the meditation with a sense, one, of confidence that, okay, the, the meditation sounded, everything else sounded counterintuitive, but it worked. Well, maybe the meditation will work too. So you come with a sense of confidence. Secondly, you've come with the experience of knowing, okay, that you're going to get something out of this. You've got to give. You can't just sit there and demand, okay, I want my meditation. I want my enlightenment. They promised me if I noted my breath enough times, I was going to get my enlightenment, and it's not coming. What's wrong? <laughs> And I must admit, there, the, the atmosphere in Dharma centers in America is very different from the atmosphere in monasteries over in Thailand. People come to meditate. There was one woman in, at IMS who <clears throat> was very upset because there was a blind man there with a seeing eye dog. She was allergic to dogs. And she went ballistic. And I was thinking, in Thailand, that would never happen. And part of the reason was, you know, she had paid her money. She expected a certain level of comfort. Whereas over in Thailand, nobody pays any money. And as hope, you know, you come out to Wat Meta, you can't expect any level of comfort. <laughs> but everybody says, hey, this is a gift. Okay, we accept the gift on its own terms. So this atmosphere of generosity really does create a different atmosphere in the practice. Not ready yet. So I think it's interesting that when the Buddha in this particular context, introduces the teaching of karma. He surrounds it with the teachings on generosity and gratitude. But because of the teachings, because there is free will, this means that you know, generosity is a good thing. You benefit from it. The people around you benefit from it. Gratitude is a good thing. There's a saying in the in one of the in one of the passages in the canon that the sign of a good person is gratitude. And the reason for that is, okay, being a good person takes effort. If you don't have gratitude for the goodness that other people have done for you, that means you don't really appreciate the amount of effort that went into it. You're probably not inclined to put that effort into it yourself. 
However, if you are a person of gratitude, it means you appreciate goodness, you appreciate the effort that goes into it, and you realize, okay, it's a good thing to do the good things in life. So keep this in mind, that when the Buddha taught karma, he was not teaching defeatism, he was not teaching guilt, remorse, all those other things that we tend to associate with the teaching on karma. He surrounded it with, okay, it's because of the way he teaches karma that gratitude and generosity really are good virtues. And you, when you think about them, these are kind of the basic virtues in any kind of decent life. So the, the reason this is called mundane right view is, is if you act on, this, on these views, you will tend to lead a good life. This will give you the impetus for, for being generous, for being virtuous. The Buddha talks about virtue as a gift to other people. You decide that you're not going to kill anybody. This is your gift to everybody. And because you've made up their mind that you're not going to kill anybody, then you yourself receive part of that protection yourself. So it's a gift to others and it's a gift to yourself when you, when you adhere by the virtues in these ways, adhere by the precepts in these ways. So if this is your attitude towards life, okay, this, you know, life doesn't end in a total wipeout. It carries on. Therefore, it's good to be virtuous all the way up through old age. So these, these, these views the Buddha recommends as views that are skillful for leading to a, a happy life within the context of, con of conditioned reality. Now, if you would like to go beyond, have a taste of the ultimate happiness that comes through ending intention, then you move on to transcendent right view, which is seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Knowledge with reference to stress, with reference to the origination of stress, knowledge with reference to the cessation of stress, and knowledge with reference to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. That phrase, knowledge with reference to, can also be translated as knowledge in terms of, i.e. seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha presents the Four Noble Truths as an alternative to our normal way of looking at things, which is what's me and what's not me, and what exists and what doesn't exist. When he analyzes and looking at things in terms of stress like this, the whole issue of self and not self gets put aside, and you just look, okay, when I do this certain sort of action, when this action happens, what's the result? Is it stressful or does it lead to the continuation of stress or does it lead to the ending of stress? And that's a very radically different way of looking at reality. Because if you look in terms of that mundane right view, we're still talking in terms of narrative and worldview. We're still talking in terms of those, the Buddha's first two knowledges. You know, the people who are reborn, the people who know about this, there are these worlds. But when you get to transcendent right view, the issue of who's doing it doesn't come in. The issue of worlds doesn't come in. It's what, what I referred to earlier as the emptiness mode. So those are the main differences. The similarity, of course, is that you know, the similarity of cause and effect operates on both levels. And it's the same principle of cause and effect. That intentions in the present moment can have effects now or on into the future. Intentions from the past might be having effects now as well. But you're looking at the whole issue in different terms. Instead of personalizing it or putting it in terms of narrative, you're simply looking at the events 
as they happen in the mind. So the difference between the right view that leads to happiness within the conditioned realm and the right view that leads to the unconditioned happiness is in terms of how you frame the issue. I.e., remember attention, the word we talked about? It's, it's how you frame the issue. If you frame it in terms of people doing actions, the virtues of certain people doing certain actions, and the destination of those people as a result of their doing actions, it leads to happiness within the conditioned realm. But if you drop those those narratives and those worldviews, okay, then you're operating in the, the path that leads to the end of suffering, a totally un, ultimate happiness. Now, in practice, what you find is that Buddhist practice is always a mixture of both. The Buddha doesn't say it's either or. Either you meditate or you're generous. He says both. Because the generosity helps the meditation. The practice of the precepts helps with the meditation as well. And vice versa. The more you meditate, the easier it is to be generous, the easier it is to be virtuous. So this is the intended use of this teaching on intention, which, in other words, you don't focus on the parts of your present experience that you can't change. You focus on the parts that you can. And that means if, if you find that you're, you're born poor or with all sorts of handicaps, instead of lamenting that situation, you focus on the positive. Okay, what can be done and given the situation? What's the best that can be done? You focus your attention there. At the same time, if you're born into very comfortable, powerful situations, you don't rest on your laurels because you realize okay, you're, if you're dealt a good hand but you play it poorly, you're asking for problems. You can't be complacent. Because especially in a conditioned realm, one of the aspects of this nonlinear causality is that things can change very fast. You look at any kind of graph, you know, the stock prices, they don't go sort of a nice curves or sales, you know, there's hardly anything in life that has a nice smooth curve except for the sun coming up and going down. I mean, most people's lives have this kind of jagged up and down. Getting older, well, it's kind of... <laughs> and it's usually crash. <laughs> so it means just because things are sailing along smoothly right now doesn't mean they're going to continue sailing along smoothly. Question, okay, you've got this opportunity to do good with the power and wealth or whatever you've got. Don't waste that opportunity. We'll also find that the same principle applies in your meditation. Your meditation is going well, don't get complacent. It's going poorly, don't get down. Focus on what you can do. But those are issues that we'll go into more tomorrow. For right now, I'd like to ask if there are any questions dealing with mundane right view, transcendent right view, and this whole issue of looking, f trying to develop more skillfulness in your intentions for the relative happiness of the conditioned realm or the ultimate happiness of the unconditioned. Yes? This. Okay. Anything that depends on conditions. Anything that's part of a causal chain. And as we saw earlier, the big impetus in the causal chain that we're experiencing are our intentions. Results of past intentions and combined with our present intentions. That's the conditioned realm. Yeah. Yes?
Okay, he, he takes it, he says, you have to take it on an act of faith. Because you, you can never know. It seems like you're acting on free will, but there's always a possibility that there's some God who's already determined that you're going to act the way you are. Or that you know, some scientific laws say the atoms in your body are going to have to move in a particular way. And he's saying the only way you can prove that this is not true is by following his path. To the point where you take the, this conditioned realm apart and you realize it was, it was your intentions that were keeping all this together. That's your proof. Prior to that, he says, you take it on faith. But don't you want to take it on faith? Yeah. I personally find the idea of free will a lot more attractive. Yeah. But there's also, there's also, you know, it carries responsibility as well. You can't say, well, I'm suffering because God wanted me to suffer as part of his eternal play. You say, no, this is, you know, I made these choices and now I'm reaping the, response, reaping the results of my choices. But the Buddha's emphasis is not so much on lamenting your past bad choices, but on focusing on the fact that you always have the opportunity for a good choice. And this is why the, his last words were to be heedful. If we didn't have free will, why be heedful? Why be careful about what you do? It wouldn't make any difference. It's because it does make a difference. He says, be very careful about your choices. Be very careful to make the most of your opportunities. So that's it's, it's sort of the, the upside is that it's empowering, and the downside, of course, is it makes you responsible. <laughs> but he says there's no other way to the end of suffering. Yes? Mm -hmm. It just seems like that I'm unable to rush anything. I'm, I'm 
that it's just by a stroke of luck in terms of the influences I've had that I've gotten to where I am, including right here, saying what I'm saying to you. Mm-hmm. Now, I've had a choice of raising my hand or not raising my hand, but I don't, I don't see myself as having a choice. It was as if I, I had to say what I wanted to say to get your response to what I'm saying. So I, I don't see that, I don't, I guess I'm a person that thinks that free will and choice is not illusion. And it, it an, an illusion. He thinks that free will is an illusion. It, it's kind of like in the moment it looks like choice. Mm-hmm. But when I look back, if I say that I choose A or B, I have to say, well, obviously the reason I chose A is because all the influences that were in place for me to choose A, including the intention. Mm-hmm. So I don't, how, I don't understand how anything can be... I mean, it sounds to me that there's karma that's karma. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how anything can be liberated from it, except for you know, this unconditioned space that we, that we can get to I asked that question to my teacher one time. He said, go back and meditate. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, you don't have any proof either of the free will or of the lack of free will until you've come to the end of the path and you've experienced how you get to the unconditioned and you realize as part of that process okay, you really did have the choice. Up to that point, it's always something you, you either take on faith or you say no. You don't take it on faith. The Buddha can never prove it to you. He said the only way you prove it is you follow this path and you begin to take apart your intentions and you see how much, how radically they created your, your experience at the present moment. Okay, well, just keep at the process. Because <laughs> the, the Buddha's not saying that all intentions are free. He says a lot of us do go on automatic pilot. But every now and then you get these intentions that are not. And he says the more consciousness, the more mindfulness, the more alertness you bring to your intentions, the greater the range of possibilities you see are out there. And that way you begin also to see the greater, you know, the, the wider your range of choices. I leave it open as a question because I said there's no proof. Yes. We have some street noise over here. If people asking questions could have the intention to speak up, okay. the conditions for hearing. Them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> question. practice of meditation is a gift. And you don't have to think about it in mystical terms, just realize, okay, you become a calmer person, you're less likely to act on greed, anger, and delusion. 
the people around you are less likely to be afflicted by your greed, anger, and delusion. So it's not, you're not the only person who benefits. I mean, you hear over and over again, Theravada is the selfish form of Buddhism, right? <laughs> and one, I never met any really selfish teachers in Thailand. And the people in Thailand are extremely generous country. But what, I, what really struck me more than anything else is how the practice is a communal effort over there. In the sense that some people realize they don't have the time, they've got other responsibilities, they don't have the time to meditate full time. But they are willing to support people who are. And in exchange, the people who are supported have that debt of gratitude that they want to help the people who are supporting them. Unfortunately, it's not a tit for tat. You know, we'll give you X amount of food and you have to teach us X amount of hours. It's more like, okay, you learn this and then you share whatever you learn from your practice. And so you're operating on what's really an economy of gifts. In the sense that everybody's working together on this, this, this team effort, basically. Let's produce some arahants. Because <laughs> the country's going to be a lot better place if we do. And it requires everybody working together. The other benefit from that is did you ever read that book? I think it's by a man named Hyde called The Gift. It's a study of gift giving and exactly what a gift does. And basically, the thing, what a gift does is it breaks down barriers between people. If, something has to, if, if you have to charge money, if you have to pay money to get something, there's that barrier right there that only the money is going to come over. But if the gift is given, the barrier is destroyed. And basically, you become part of that person's family. And one of the interesting things I noticed in Thailand was that the terms that monks, there's a special vocabulary that monks use for their lay supporters, which are basically the same terms that you use for relatives. And someone who supports you suddenly becomes a relative. And you get this enormous extended family that just goes on and on and on. And so in the act of generosity, you're creating relationships, you're creating you know, relatives. So to, you know, working together as kind of an extended family, you are you know, helping the practice in whatever way you're, you find skillful or that you feel up to. Now, the, the drawback of this is when you're running a monastery, sometimes it's like herding cats because everybody's, everybody's doing what they want to do, right? You know, they give what they feel in, you know, inclined to give and what they want to volunteer. And sometimes you, know, you need X, but you get Y. <laughs> well, you learn to make do with Y. We have a few, a few Americans who are on our temple committee right now who have a military background. And they're very frustrated by the fact that things are not very, run very efficiently. You know? I always say, calm down, it's going, to get, it's going to get taken care of. But the upside is that everybody's there voluntarily. You know? Everywhere you look in the monastery, you've got a gift. It's the fruit of somebody's generosity. So you think about that, and as a meditator, that gives you more of a, you know, impulse to practice as part of this common effort. Yes. The difficult part, though, about choosing the right choice, making the right choices, the right intentions, is that everything is so intertwined through nonlinear uh, relationships that no matter what you choose, you're going to create, in some respect, a benefit to yourself and to others, and suffering to yourself and to others. Um, the extreme example would be uh, you know, the, the chaos theory about the butterflies, wings in Brazil causes the 
the hurricane eventually that hits New York. Mm-hmm. So some poor guy in Brazil shows compassion to this butterfly, lets it go, and then the hurricane hits New York uh, <laughs> a, a year later, uh-huh. and the computers crunch the numbers, and they say, that's the guy that did it. Or you decide that you want to give up a bad relationship, even though that person is very interesting to be with, for the, for the kind person mm-hmm. who, is a, who, who bores you after 15 minutes. <laughs> so no matter what you do, it's going to be a trade <laughs> <laughs> Yes. This is why you want to get out of the conditioned realm. Well, again, what I, what I was saying to Bob just now is that when I was practicing as a monk in Thailand, there was never any sense that I was leaving humanity. You know? In fact, I was meeting a lot wider range of humanity than I would have met if I'd stayed here. And you learn a lot of lessons. When you're, the, when, you're the, when you're the recipient of a poor person's generosity, it really hits you. On the one hand, okay, they want to give that to you and you're offering them the opportunity for generosity. Okay, you're not pulling yourself out of the human realm. And I think a lot of, a lot of our preconceptions about this have to do with you know, Christian monasteries, you know, the, the monks are just sort of behind walls and kept away. Whereas over there, the monastery is kind of a social place. People come to the monastery on a regular basis. So you can't really get away. But there's always that risk that you have, like the, in the time machine, you have the Eloi versus the, the uh, Morlocks, where you have a certain small group that has reached this great level of awareness, but for instance, I think I read that the Theravada tradition is not, you don't do your own farming. So somebody's going to have to do the farming. And those people now have put themselves into the into the conditional realm just so that the Eloi can uh, get their, their uh, food, at least once their, their ration, at least in the morning before noon. So somebody ends up having to, uh, you know, stuff with the bills, so to speak. You're living off the surplus. People are already farming anyhow. Whether they're going to be monks or not, they're going to be farmers. Because basically, as a monk, you're. I was I was struck by this one day when I was on my alms round. That as a monk, you're living a life of a hunter and gatherer. You don't store things up. You don't carry money. You eat the food you get that day. It's all the conditions of hunters and gatherers, and what you're living off is of the surplus that other people have. So it's a good use of the surplus. And again, it's not that you're just you know, siphoning off everything good from them and not returning anything. I mean, look at Thailand recently. They had that whole problem with the, the economic collapse. And it was, a, it was a, num- a handful of forest monks that took it into their hands and said, let's raise some money to guarantee the Thai cur- currency. And it was because and other groups in Thailand had tried this and nobody said, you, you, we're going to give you our money? Forget it. We don't trust you. But in this case, it's, okay, these, these are monks we trust. And so huge amounts of money were raised. So it shows you what happens when you've got this, as I said, this sense of family, that everybody's working together. It's not just the Eli's and the Morai's or, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> More locks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
say this because it's so, you know, it's so with me. I, I had a really challenging um, week at work, and um, I, there were a couple of conflicts that I experienced with a couple of people that were in my work world. And I'm just thinking in um, the context of karma, you know, how that's going to be a very challenging area for me because after these conflicts occurred, and of course, you know, without being too hard on myself, I had to be somewhat, you know, in some way part of them because they were between me and others. I tried to talk to the people about, you know, to kind of, you know, create harmony and, and communicate. And I found, at least for the moment, that these people really were not very available for this. In fact, they seemed to want to hold on to the anger. And, and there are people that, um, this is sort of more of a comment, because I work with them. And then I, I, I feel that I've created some karma with them that I would like to help heal and, you know, kind of, and I can't, like, you know, just run away from them without like, quitting my job. You know, really. And I find it just so challenging because I, and, and I guess there's some suffering there. I feel very sad, you know, troubled by this. Like, I don't really know what to do first thing is equanimity. There are certain things you cannot change. <laughs> you can't change their attitudes. You can't change their intentions. Um, and then secondly, look for the right time and the right place to make a change. This is, this is another aspect of this nonlinear causality, is that everything depends on timing. And like the butterfly wing, you know, if it flaps, you know, one second earlier, one second later, it causes a hurricane in San Diego rather than New York, you know. You have to look for the right time. And this, this is another one of the, the lessons that you really, I picked up a great deal in Thailand, which is there's always a right and a wrong time for almost anything. And just because you want to say something doesn't mean that right now is the right time to say it. You look for the causes and conditions and then, then you strike in a positive way. So look for the right, look for the opening. And in the meantime, just develop a lot of equanimity. Because we have this misconception about equanimity that it means just kind of a blasé attitude or non-reactive attitude to everything. It's actually part of a series. You've got goodwill, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And the goodwill is your basic intention, your basic motivation. You want everybody to be happy. Okay, and then there's situations where you see people are not happy. You look, is there anything I can do to help? Situations where you see people are already are happy. Is there anything I can do to help keep them being happy and not be jealous or resentful of their happiness? And then the fourth one is, okay, there are times when you can't help the people who are suffering or the people who are happy are bastards <laughs> or whatever. You know, there's, there's imperfect situations in the world. And you realize, okay, I can't focus my energy there because it's going to be a waste. And that's, where you, that's when you bring in the equanimity. This is not the time. This is not the place. Just let things pass for the time being. And that way you're focusing your energy, again, at the right spots where it really does make a difference and not wasting your energy obsessing about things where you can't change anything. Thank you so much. Yes.
it's not a matter of lay or ordained. It's a matter of how much time you put into it. And if you put yourself in a life situation where you don't have much time, again, you're limiting the amount of time you can, you can give to the practice. But some people, I mean, I know a number of lay people that I'm convinced are at least stream enterers. Practice with my teacher. And it was just a matter of kind of the, the kind of dedication that they stuck with the practice. Because, you know, generosity doesn't wear robes. Virtue doesn't wear robes. Meditation doesn't wear robes. None of the good qualities are specifically for monks. And you get a lot of monks who are lazy, who don't do the practice at all. So it's more a question of the dedication. You've got to decide, okay, this is something I'm really aiming for, and you're willing to make the sacrifices. You've probably heard that story about the chess game. Do you mind if I tell old stories? <laughs> I have a friend who's a novelist, and she, <clears throat> she writes a novel set in China. She's also a, a professor at a university down in Virginia. And every time her new novel comes out, she's got to go take it to the alumni clubs and read to them and get the assigned books and that kind of stuff. And in her latest novel, she had this one incident in which um, there's a young woman whose mother dies at the beginning of the novel and whose father swears up and down he's not going to forget the memory of the mother, he's going to stay true to the mother and sort of raise the girls as the mother would want him to. And sure enough, after a couple months, he's sent off to the south on some business and comes back with a, with a courtesan as his wife. Well, the courtesan is no dummy. She sets to work to be a good mother to the girl. And there's one evening where they're playing chess. And as they're playing chess, she's teaching the girl that, okay, if you want happiness in life, you've got to decide there's one thing you want more than anything else. And you're willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And the girl, being a typical girl, half listens to her mother and half doesn't listen to her mother. But she's noticing, hey, the mother's losing pawns all over the place on the chessboard. So she, this is a lousy chess player. I've got, I can be more aggressive. So she gets very aggressive in her game. And, of course, she falls into the mother's trap. The mother wins. Checkmate. And of course, the way that she's playing chess is illustrating the point that she's trying to teach. And my friend said that, she, I mentioned that to my friend, that this was my favorite passage in the whole book. And my friend said, well, you know, I've been taking it around to these alumni clubs, and because this was the only self-contained passage in the book, this was the passage that I read. Nobody liked it. <laughs> Everyone wants to win at chess and keep all their pawns. <laughs> so there, there are things that you're going to have to sacrifice if you want this, but it's not... You don't have to sacrifice your lay life, let's put it that way. As I have known lay people who've been able to get at least stream entry. You've got a you know, firm foothold. But it does take dedication. Anything else? Yes. Um, a suda that's been a great help for me is in the Udanas, the teaching that the Buddha gives to Bahia. Mm -hmm. Right before Bahia is about to die, he doesn't mm -hmm. know it, and he says to the Buddha, "You know, I don't know. We don't know how much time we have to live. Can you summarize your teaching?" And the Buddha gives a teaching, and I, I didn't memorize your translation, so mm -hmm. forgive me. But he basically says, "When you recognize that in the scene, there's only the scene and the herd, the herd, the cognize, the cognize, mm -hmm. then you'll see that you're neither here nor there nor anywhere." 
in between. In between, mm-hmm. which is basically a not self um, contemplation. And that, for me, I also read a book by Ajahn Amaro on that, which really, really helped me for years in my practice. And I use that as a very fundamental practice. And I don't see that under mundane right view or transcendent right view. Is, is that just some? Is that like a? Was that just like a little? Pastime of mine, or is that a useful? <laughs> was was the, all the insight and the help that I got from realizing that I couldn't find myself in any of the the things that I encountered in my own internal phenomenal experience? Mm-hmm. For me, it was very liberating. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, where does that fit into this scheme? Okay, it fits into the scheme. The question on not seeing yourself in anything um, fits into the scheme as to when you add a self, is there suffering? Yes. Always? Yes. Because anything that I attach self to is going to be impermanent and is eventually going to cause stress. Therefore, whenever I create self, it's, mm-hmm. I'm creating suffering. Okay, you're going to find that you're creating different kinds of self. And there are some times when certain types of self are helpful. Okay, I accept that. Yeah. Ultimately, though, you begin to realize at any point, especially when you've got the mind to a state of concentration mm-hmm. and you've got things settled down, there be, any addition of a sense of self is going to become stressful and an unnecessary addition to things. And that's, it's because it's stressful, that's why you drop it. So that's a point. Right. right. But as my teacher always said, don't drop yourself too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, because you, know, you require a healthy sense of self just to function, you know, to be able to think of deferred gratification, to be responsible, um, to be able to gauge exactly how much effort is worth a particular, how much a particular form of happiness, how much effort is worth it, and the ability to keep a continued effort. That requires a certain kind of self. But if I cling to it or attach to it, that's where trouble Use it. <laughs> Use it, and then you can put it aside. But the whole point of this is to see that your sense of self is an activity. It's another fabrication. It's another intention, just like these other ones. I think that gets to the question back there in the back of the room. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Yes. Okay, the question of prayer in Buddhism, there's, there's no who that we're praying to. Yeah. And it's simply the, the power of the intention. Remember, we're trying to develop good intentions, skillful intentions, and it helps to articulate them. The thing is that there, there's kind of a, there's an energy to the mind. And you, you've heard of that, you know, the, the, the power of prayer on plants, you know, you've, you've seen that. I actually had a friend who did the experiment one time, and it worked, you know. Yeah. 
it, it's, it's part of the, the sort of this general non-linear pattern that you have. You just put as many good intentions into the system. And it helps. You don't find it much in the Pali Canon. John Lee talks about this in some of his writings. He says, you know, there really is a power that comes from a, the power of, a, of goodwill. And there are lots of stories in the, in the tradition in Thailand about you know, the forest around monks who you know, radiate goodwill. The animals are a lot more peaceful and friendly, that kind of thing. So I say, you know, keep, keep putting the, the, the good wishes out there. <laughs> Yes. Is that question sort of similar? I, I saw a book recently where a monk focused on water and the crystalline structure of the water. Like Changed it. Focused bad thoughts. It was like when you focus beautiful thoughts, it was like snowflakes. Yeah. Anything like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go around just thinking good thoughts and not acting on them, then you're not carrying through. And the whole point of developing good thoughts is then if you find an opportunity to act, then you act on that as well. But a lot of times in order to get those skillful thoughts going, it's really helpful to articulate them. Because so many people I've noticed have problems with this simple one, may I be truly happy. People feel embarrassed or they feel selfish or they feel that they just can't really wish that for themselves. And you've got to work through that blockage before the practice is really going to go well. And it's the same with spreading thoughts of goodwill. It's not like we're spreading cotton candy over the world. You've actually got to think, is there anybody out there that I really don't have goodwill for? I bet in the past five years, George Bush has gotten a lot. You know, when we go through that, think of people you don't like. Spread goodwill to those people as well. I mean, it's White House. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they'd accept the job. <laughs> but um, the whole purpose of this is not just to think sweet thoughts about people, to ask yourself, is there anybody out there that I really have ill will for? And you say, well, these people, I don't like this person, I don't like that person. Well, wait a minute. Why do you have to have ill will for people you don't like? Because think about it. When you're wishing goodwill for other people, what are you wishing? That, that they find true happiness. If everybody in the world had true happiness, we wouldn't see this mess that we have right now. And so even if, if people are disagreeable or doing really harmful things, there's no reason for you to not wish true happiness for them. That they would have to find somehow true happiness and then they would change their ways. And then you start going through the world with a lot different attitude. So that cuts down your barriers and you see people that normally you might be afraid of or normally people that you might normally feel aversion to. You begin to realize, okay, that's a person too. They want happiness. And that right there, you've got a connection. Yes. Goodwill on somebody I really don't like, and they're like, 
Right, right, right. <laughs> right, yeah. Think of it for the sake of the world, okay? <laughs> but it also changes your dynamic towards them. And when your dealings with them take into consideration their desire for happiness, it's, it's a more inclusive kind of question. <laughs> my experience with that was one time um, ever since I've ordained I've had lots of experiences with snakes I don't know why this is prior to my ordination I had no dealings with snakes at all I go to Thailand there are cobras everywhere you know? and not just everywhere particularly around me until the point where my teacher began to notice it was awfully strange and he gave me a chant, basically wishing goodwill to the snakes so they would go away, you know, leave me alone. Um, and I could entertain you for the rest until 5 o'clock with my snake stories. But uh, The one I had in mind was when I came back here to the States. Where do I live? San Diego. We have rattlesnakes. Okay. And one evening I was sitting out in the orchard and all of us heard this through the leaves under the avocado trees. And it doesn't take long living there to realize okay, what sound different animals make. Oh, there's a huge rattler coming up the hill. And I said, okay, in five minutes I've got to go up the hill and if I stand up right now it's going to startle the rattler. So lots of goodwill to the rattler. May he go away someplace else. You know. And he changed his path and came right to me. <laughs> and so I said, okay, lots of goodwill to the rattler. <laughs> And so it forced me to, I had to sit still there for quite a while until he went away. So, yeah, there's a hand over here. The thing is, when you spread thoughts of goodwill, you do radiate a different kind of energy. 
animals I know pick this up. <laughs> what was that? Snakes. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. My, one of my teachers once said, when you meditate, you start at the beginning of the meditation with thoughts of goodwill, then go into meditation, and then when you come out, you spread thoughts of goodwill again. The first time, when you're at the beginning of the meditation, it's basically for your own sake, to get your mind in the right place. When you come out, it's for everybody else. If only for the idea that when you come out of meditation, you want to come into the world with goodwill. And that changes your attitude towards the people that you encounter after coming out of meditation. Some people are resistant. You know. Some people have a real guard all shield that resists all menta. You know. <laughs> My attitude towards this, it's harmless, okay? It can only help. It can't harm. So go ahead and send it. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Recently, one of my students who also studies other forms of meditation and other forms of Buddhism called me up with a problem with her. She's switching her, her apartment house. is changing landlords. And the old landlord, she had some issues with him. And the new landlord, she says, is a member of the mafia. So she's kind of scared. And apparently the, the law in San Francisco is that when an apartment house changes hands like this, there's a form that all the tenants have to fill out and send into some sort of rental board. And the old landlord apparently raised the rent several times illegally, and she doesn't know whether to put it on the form or not. And so I asked her, well, check around with the other tenants. Are they putting it on the form? And she said, that's what I like about you Theravadans. You're so practical. <laughs> Because all of her other friends said, well, do X number of mantras and sort of radiate thoughts of goodwill and that'll take care of the situation. <laughs> so I would say, you know, check with the other tenants and send thoughts of goodwill, just in case. There's a question over here.
they were choking this one kid, and the all half of the train went away from it. Mm-hmm. And we were yelling to stop. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he could have had a gun, he could have, you know, and that upsets me that I didn't do more. I mean, it, it ended up okay, they let him go. But, you know, you choose choosing to help people versus your own survival. You've got to, again, the word says, no affliction to yourself or other people. First, you can guess, okay, you've got to maintain. This is where you have to say, okay, is this important enough to sacrifice that, you know, that much for? Again, you have to weigh the, the results. This is one that where there's no clear answer, no easy answer. Let's put it that way, there's no easy answer, no across-the-board kind of answer. But the Buddha isn't, as my teacher once said, the Buddha is not teaching you to be stupid. You know, you look at the situation. You know, okay, you know, if they have a gun, if they have a knife, can I handle it? I can't. Okay, I'm going to step back. But don't browbeat yourself over it afterwards. That's the important thing. It's a fine line, yeah. But again, a lot of remorse over the past does not help you make a clearer choice in the future. You might say, you know, living in New York City, and if I were living in New York City, I'd learn a few martial arts. You know. <laughs> um, but that's just me. <laughs> yes?
not really. It's, it's still within the conditioned realm. The important thing, though, this, this issue of expiating past karma or burning off past karma, the Buddha never talks in those terms. In fact, there was, there was a time when he visited some, some Jain ascetics, and they talked about burning off past karma. And he says, can you show me how much past karma you burned off? You just don't know. I mean, what you know is the right thing. Okay, you do the best you can right now. In the sense of trying to develop a more skillful attitude, say, towards the pain. And then sometimes you have to deal with the fact that sometimes the pain coming in from the, you know, the, the karma coming in from the past is such that okay, you can't just get rid of the pain, but at least you can be at peace with the pain or you can learn how to sort of get the mind to a state of equanimity around the pain or you can change your perception of the pain. Instead of saying pain, 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 you just say sensation, sensation. Or you look at the sensation to see you know, how does it come, how does it go, where is this impermanent what is the sort of the malleability of this sensation? So that you begin to get, you see exactly how much you have contributed to making the pain worse in the present moment. And then you pull back and you stop that. That's what you can know. And as long as you're not creating extra suffering around it, the Buddha gives the analogy of being shot by two arrows. There may be the pain, which is the pain, which is the first arrow. And then we go and we shoot ourselves with a second arrow by the attitude we have towards the pain. There may still be the pain of the first arrow, but if there's not that second arrow, the mind doesn't suffer. If the pain can be purely a physical sensation without the mental added on, that's what you can know. And the state of peace that comes after that is, you know, it's a state of equanimity, which is still in the conditioned world, but it's a much calmer, much more solid way of being in the conditioned world than if you continued in your old patterns. That much you can know. And the whole point of this is the Buddha is not asking you to look for causes in things that you can't know. Because basically the, the amount of suffering that's going on in the mind is dependent on your current intentions and perceptions and your attention, the way you look at things. And that you can change. So you work with that. Does that help? Unless you die, yes. <laughs> right, yeah. But there are times when you've got well, some of these long-term pains from an illness, say, and no matter how much you sit with it, it's still going to be an illness. You know? In which case, you just, okay, learn how to, how to live with it. But you also find that the pain comes and goes and comes and goes. And a lot of times we have this way of conceptualizing the pain that it's this big, solid block right there. And you just say, okay, let's drop that perception for the time being and look at it as, as a sort of a coming and going of little pains rather than one just big pain. And you begin to realize how much that perception of the block added to the pain. Or you can think of you know, the breath energy flowing through that part of the body to sort of, again, loosen up the solidity of the pain. And sometimes that you find that actually makes it go away. Because you know, the original physical cause for the pain has long gone, 
but you still carry this metal block around. So you remove the metal block, the pain is gone. Other times you remove the metal block, okay, the physical causes are still there, but they don't weigh on the mind. Because it's these perceptions that create the bridge from the mind to the pain. If you drop those, then it's two separate things. Yes? Uh, I think there's a practice where you take on the pain of suffering of others literally in a way, mm-hmm. kind of absorb it to some extent, take it off their shoulders. And I think if that's possible, then the inverse of that is that you should be able to also take something out mm-hmm. and affect someone else. I've never been able to take the pain off of anybody's shoulders. Because <laughs> it's. From the, early, the point of view of the early teachings is that the reason we're suffering is because of our lack of skill. And you can't make somebody else skillful. Skill is something that each of us has to learn. You can, you can give hints, you can give advice, but the actual development of the skill is an individual thing. So that's the best you can do is sort of give that kind of help. Yes? Mental. You see that in the meditation as well. It's talking about how being able to separate yourself from the pain affects your attitude toward it. You sit there and you say, oh my gosh, my legs are going to fall off. They're going to have to be removed after the, med- after the meditation. <laughs> or that you know, you're ruining your legs or you're doing some, you know, some physical damage and that just adds to the suffering. I found Someone taught me one time, and whether it's true or not, it's always helped me, um, that you're especially when you're starting out in meditating and you're not used to this posture that you know, you're folding your legs in a certain way that they're not used to so the main arteries are cut off and so the blood gets forced into the capillaries where it's painful. This happens enough over time those capillaries begin to expand and then they become new arteries. So you're basically rerouting your blood. So it's, and then when you think about it that way, so, oh, this is just you know, a normal part of the adjustment and it's not nearly as... as as bad as you know, contemplating paralysis for the rest of your life. <laughs> but there are other more subtle ways, even just with the pain. You can change, okay, what, what is this actual, what actually is this sensation of pain? And you can begin to see, as we were saying earlier, about how much you put into that pain by the way you intentionally perceive it. And if you change your perception, you change your, the way you frame the issue of your conception of pain, it will change the experience. Yes. I'd like to ask you briefly uh, about the notion of burning off. Uh, you said that the Buddha did not teach the burning off of karma. Um, but uh, I attended a 10 day retreat with the Vipassana Society that went mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And as I recall, he talked about how if you bore the uh, painful moments of sitting in the equanimity, that you were kind of allowed. 
You heard what he said, but he, <laughs> but it, there's nothing in the Buddha's teachings to to support that. In fact, the Buddha actually attacks that notion as a wrong view. Purification is that the instructions to Brahula. The instructions to Brahula. That's purification. And again, it's something you can actually know. Because there is this famous passage where the Buddha goes to see the Jains, and the Jains says, here we are just enduring all these pains from our practice. We're burning off all this past karma. And the Buddha says, do you know how much past karma you burned off? Can you measure this? I mean, it's dealing in a concept that you can't really experience directly. And even with being equanimous, it's not that you're not creating new karma. Equanimity is a kind of sankara. It is a kind of a formation, metal formation, because there's an element of intention there. Therefore, you're trying to develop a skillful intention in the present moment, but the amount of past karma that's left or not left, that's really irrelevant. You don't have to burn off all your past karma before you gain awakening. This is one of another area where the Buddhist teachings and the Jain teachings really split. It's not that you have, and this is a lot of time. This is where I think a lot of the Buddha nature argument from China came. That again, because there, there was that belief that was carried into China and Japan that you've got all this bad karma in your past lifetimes. You've got to work through all that before you have any hope of gaining awakening. You know, wrong view in capital letters. Because you've got you've got Angulimala with all his past karma. He didn't burn it off. It's simply realizing, okay. What I'm doing right now is making all the difference. So let's focus on what I'm doing right now. As for paying off my old karma debts, if that happens after I've gained awakening, so much the better. Because I'm not going to suffer. So once Angulimala Yes. Okay, there's just dealing with sensations or Vedana. Um, that's a complex question. Um, when you read the Buddha's instructions on the breath, he doesn't talk about breath only as a way of bringing you down and then you drop the breath and move to other things. He says, in the context of being directly with the breath, which is used as an anchor to keep you in the present moment, you will encounter physical sensations, mental sensations, mental states, mental qualities, all the four frames of reference are right there. You also just, you know, all forms of fabrication or sankara are right there. There's physical sankara, which is the breath. You've got verbal sankara, which is directed thought and evaluation. And then the mental sankara of feelings and perceptions. All these things are involved. 
what I've seen of Goenka, I don't see much teaching on intention or the element of intentions as they create your present reality. One. And then he has that strange teaching of, you know, defilements basically come out of the body. That has no basis in the Buddha's teachings at all. Defilements come from the mind. And simply by burning off pain does not burn off the defilements. I and mean, it's a very Jain notion that he's dealing with. Because a purification is a purification of the mind, which comes from seeing the element of attention, intention, how they operate, and then creating more and more skillful intentions. And to the point where you see that equanimity or non-reactivity or whatever you want to call it, that too is a construct that ultimately you have to drop as well. So those are some of the differences. Yeah. We're getting close to five. So, tonight I'd like everyone to meditate at least an hour. <laughs> if you can find a time when you go home. Please look through the remaining passages in the, in the text because we've got a lot to cover tomorrow. Oh. Tomorrow morning's discussion is going to be on sort of karma as it's taught in the large scale, i.e. we'll be dealing with issues of rebirth, that kind of stuff. So prepared, be prepared for a lively discussion. And then the afternoon sessions will be focused directly on meditation, issues of meditation and how they relate to the teaching on karma. I must admit, I'm interested in that last topic, but we have to get through the other topic first to sort of because as I said earlier, that the lessons you learn in the present moment can be applied to life as a whole, but also lessons from life can be applied to the present moment. So it's interesting to see the Buddha's perspective on, okay, what's happening in human life? What are the proper attitudes to have? I'm interested less in, in the issues of rebirth. There's something that the Buddha calls the ways of the world. And think about this tonight. He says that your experience of the world is made up of eight things. Gain loss, status, loss of status, praise, criticism, pleasure, pain. So this is what the world has to offer you. And how are you going to react when these things come? Because the teachings on karma have a lot to say about that. So think a little bit about that tonight as well. And we'll see you tomorrow morning at 10. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.